Take your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 9 this morning. Romans chapter 9. I have a big subject to cover this morning. And Romans chapter 9 is always a challenging passage because it deals with something that some people don't like to consider, and that is the sovereignty of God. And so, follow in your Bibles as we read this passage, beginning in verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are, the, they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, they are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are, cont- are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, the children not being not yet born, neither having done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared, be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? But nay, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his power on the vessels of mercy which he had before prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Osi, or Isaiah, I, I will call thy, the, them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which were, was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass that in that place where it is said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also so cried concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been, we had been a Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. What we, shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained unto righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. And I know that the passage before us, Lord, is a difficult passage, but we pray that you would give enablement to bring the message and help us to understand. And we thank you that you are sovereign. We also thank you that in that sovereignty you include something that's very important, and that is man is responsible. 
Help us to get those things right in our minds and understand today. And Lord, if there's someone who's not saved today, may they understand that Jesus died for them. And if they will come to him and believe, they repent and believe that they can receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and they can know they're going to heaven. Just work in, your, in, in hearts today, accomplish your will, and give enablement to bring the message. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The ninth chapter of Romans deals with the sovereignty of God in that it speaks of the purpose of God according to election, verse 11, and it reveals that God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, verse 15, and it asks the question, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? The word sovereign or sovereignty, those words are never used in the scripture. But the idea is found in the scripture. God is called almighty, the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it also says in the Bible in the book of Ephesians, he worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Therefore, uh, the, the scripture supports the idea that God is sovereign. By that would mean he rules over all, he does as he pleases, and nobody can stop him, and he answers to no one. God is sovereign. Many, of course, do not like that subject because they do not like to consider the fact that if God is sovereign, then election is true and predestination is true. I hope that none of you will ever say, oh, I sure don't believe in election, or I sure don't believe in predestination. I've had some people say that. But really, to say that is to say, I do not believe the Bible, because the Bible teaches election, and it teaches predestination. You see, we need to understand what the Bible says about this, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men, and we need to understand it and then believe whatever God says. We do not want to be like the preacher that I heard say one time many years ago, and he stated this way. He said, I believe in election. God had an election, he voted for me, and the devil voted against me, and I cast the deciding vote. That is definitely not what the Bible teaches. That puts God and the devil on the same level and gives us more power than God intended for us to have. And so that is truly not an explanation of election. I think that, that, that what makes it hard for some to understand the sovereignty of God is that the Bible also teaches the responsibility of man. And in our minds, sometimes that seems to contradict. And in reality, you really can't understand, I believe, the sovereignty of God unless you also understand the responsibility of man. Now, before we examine what chapter 9 says, I'd like to take just a minute to uh, consider why Paul didn't go from chapter 8 to chapter 12. Many people call chapter 9 through 11 a parenthesis because it seems like it's totally different than what he was talking about. You see, in chapter 8, he talked about the gospel and salvation, and he talks about justification, being declared righteous. He talks about the blessings of the justified. He talks about being free from sin and free from the law, and he talks about the security that we have in Christ. In Romans chapter 8, you know that Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then in chapter, in chapter uh, uh, 12, it seems like that would be the good climax to go to because it looks like he would say, uh, I after doing all that, he would say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. But he doesn't do that. He introduces chapter 9 and chapter, through chapter 11. Now, why would God do that? You see, I believe the reason is Paul knew that the gospel was inter, inter, intertwined with the Jewish people. The gospel was intertwined with the promise of the Messiah. And in a Jew's mind, they saw a problem. And that is, if Jesus died for the world and he offers all of this, and all this is connected with the Messiah that you, that you preach, then the Bible says... History says that the Jews rejected Jesus. 
I mean, they didn't want anything to do with him. In fact, they begged for uh, the Roman government to crucify him, and when they did, they were there cheering them on. They did not want Jesus. They didn't have, want anything to do with him. So did that mean that God has, has uh, uh, done away with Israel? Does that mean that God's promises them will no longer be fulfilled because they rejected, rejected Jesus? And the answer is no, it's not. And in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he sort of explains that. In chapter 9, he says that God's purposes, purpose according to election results in the fact that there's a remnant. And that remnant are those that God is going to fulfill his promises to. Chapter 10 tells us that Israel, because of their state that they're in right now, are responsible because man's responsible. And it says we're responsible too. And we have to call upon the Lord and trust him as our Savior. We have to do that. It's our responsibility. And then in chapter, chapter 11, he says God's not finished with Israel. In fact, in chapter 11, he tells us that, that God has a purpose for Israel. And sure, God has set aside Israel apart, apart for a while, and he's not working through them right now, but he's grafted in the church to the place of blessing, and he's working with them. But it says the day is coming when God will graft back in Israel into that place of favor and he will fulfill all of his promises in Israel. In fact, the Bible tells us in, in, in chapter 11 that there will come a day when all Israel be, will be saved. So is God going to fulfill his promises to Israel? Yes, he is. And chapter 11 tells us that, that God is going to do that. And in fact, when the, when millennial hap, when the millennium happens and all Israel will be saved. God will fulfill all of his millennial promises to a saved Israel, which that's never happened to before. There's never been such a thing as a saved Israel. Uh, many of them are unbelievers. But that day, when, when the millennium starts, all Israel will be saved because they will survive the tribulation, they will all be believers, and they will be saved. And so God, Paul does all that in chapters 9, 10, and 11. But this morning, we want to look at chapter 9, and we want to consider two subjects, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. First of all, the people who illustrate God's sovereignty is Israel. Let's look at the description of them, beginning in chapter 9, verse 4. Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption now, let's, there's a whole list of things that the Israelites, that pertains to them. And these are blessings. These are great honor to be an Israelite, to be a Jew, is a great honor because all these things are yours if you're a Jew. And he lists them. He says to them to obtain the adoption. Uh, God told Moses to tell Pharaoh that Israel is my son. <laughs> In other words, they're a very special people. There has never been or never will be another nation that God blesses in this favored way as Israel. They are his people. And so to them pertain the adoption. Also, to them pertain the glory. In the Old Testament, we found that the Lord was very glorious, and he showed his glory with the children of Israel. And he led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it was very glorious what he did with the children of Israel. To them pertained the glory. And the, and the covenants. There, there was the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. All those are to Israel. They're, none of those were to the Gentiles. They're to Israel. We're recipients of the new covenant. But those were, were given to Israel. And then he says the giving of the law. The law was the greatest moral code that has ever existed. Many nations have used the law of the Old Testament, the moral code of that, to establish their own. And one of those is the United States of America. How do we know that it's wrong to steal? God tells us so. How do we know it's wrong to commit adultery? God tells us so. How do we know that it's wrong to lie? God tells us so. It's all based on that moral code. And who, who was that given to? That was given to the Jew. Also to them, it, was, it says... The covenants, the giving of the law, and the service of God. The service of God was probably the service in the tabernacle and the, and the temple of the, uh, of the priest and the Levites when they served God. And then it says the promises. The promises. 
All the promises in the Old Testament were given to this children, the children of Israel. And those promises are still given to them, and they will be fulfilled during the millennial reign of Christ. They will be fulfilled. So to them, obtain the promises. And whose are the fathers? Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and you might include David and other great men of faith. Those were not Gentiles. Those were Israelites. And to them obtain the father, fathers. But the greatest of all those, it says this, and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came. As concerning the flesh. Of course, uh, Jesus eternally existed. But when he came to be the Messiah Savior, he came in the flesh through the virgin birth. He was born. He became a man. God became a man. And who he, was, he, was he? He is the one who is over all and God blessed forever. All of this are the privileges of the Israelites. But there's a problem. And the problem is this. They're not saved. Verse 1 says, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual heart, sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul had such a deep yearning in his, in his heart for, for his own people to know Jesus. He said, if it was possible, I would be willing not to be accepted by the Lord, to be cursed if it would mean that my children, that my people, the Israelite people would come to know Jesus as their Savior. That same sentiment is said in chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, it says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might say, For I bear them record that they might be saved, for I bear them record. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. He says, The problem is, Israel's lost. I know some were saved, some Jewish people, but as a whole, Israel was a lost nation. They did not know Jesus as their Savior. And so their problem was they were not saved. And also because of that, they were not secure. They were not able to say, like Paul said in Romans chapter 8, you know, he says, I am persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of God. They were not able to say that. So they had a real problem. They were not saved. They were not secure. Now, the problems raised because of Israel's rejection of Christ are, are, are stated in this passage. The problems are stated in the form of three questions. What problem does it rise that, that the Israelites are not saved? I've divided this into three, three, thing, three points because there's three questions that are raised in this passage. And the first question I've said, I'm going to state like this. What about God's word? I mean, God's word said these were the promised people. God's word said these people had all these promises to them, but they have rejected the Savior. They have rejected Messiah. So what does that mean? Does that mean God's word has failed? That, that question is stated in verse 6. Not as though the word of God had, had taken uh, none effect. It's not as though the word of God had taken none effect. It's like the young people say today, not. <laughs> well, has the word of God taken none effect? And, and Paul says, no, it's not true. When you ask the question, well, what about God's word? Does that mean God's word's not true when God promised all these things to them? Does that mean God's word is not true? And the answer is no. And you notice how he states it. He states it by answering the question in verse 6. He says, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So if God's made all these promises to the children of Israel and they reject him, does that mean the word of God has failed? No, he says, because they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now let me uh, try to explain that. Now, first of all, the Lord calls them Israel. So they are Israel. But he says they are not all Israel who are of Israel. What he means, I think, is this. They are not all spiritual Israel who are of national Israel. They are not all believers. They are not all recipients of the promises because they don't seek it by faith. They don't trust the Lord. And so God's not going to fulfill his promises through people who will not accept him. So they are not all true Israel, spiritual Israel, who are of the national Israel. And that's his point there. And so it's the same thing that's stated in chapter 2 of Romans. Chapter 2, verse 28. 
He says it like this. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is, his, is that circumcision which is, is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. I had a man one tell, time tell me that he was a Gentile, but he said, I'm a Jew because of what this passage says. That's not what this passage says. This passage says that you're not a true Jew, you're not a true Israelite, you're of the promise unless you've trusted Jesus. And that's the true one. So the Lord says, no, God's word has not failed because they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And then he illustrates it. He illustrates it by talking about Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac in verses 7 through 9. Isaac was the child of promise and turned out to be the person who exercised faith. Ishmael, you remember, also was a child of Abraham. In fact, Abraham prayed to God that God would bless Ishmael and uh, that all the promises would go to them. And God said, no, that's not going to be true. Your wife Sarah is going to give birth, and through that child, God is going to, to bless. So in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And God knew what he was doing. What did, the, uh, Ish- what did the Ishmaelites turn out to be? Well, basically this is this. The Ishmael- Ishmael- Ishmaelites are the Arab nations today. And who are the Arab nations? They're enemies of God's people. The Arab nations, most of them worship, uh, practice Islam. And they worship Allah. And they've turned against God. And God said, the one I'm going to fulfill my promises before any of this was ever known. He said, it's in Isaac, and Isaac shall I see be called. So God made that choice. God knew who it was. God made that choice, and he said it's going to be through Isaac. God's a very wise God. He knows what he's doing. And then he gives another illustration of Jacob and Esau. And in verses 10 through 13, he mentions that. God chose Jacob before he was born, and he said the elder shall serve the younger. You remember when they were born? They were twins. And they came out, Esau came out first. He was the firstborn. But catching on to his heel was Jacob. And so he's named the supplanter or the heel catcher. And so uh, he was actually the secondborn. But God says, I don't, I'm not going to choose the firstborn. I'm going to choose the secondborn. And, in, and Jacob's going to be the one through, through whom I'm going to bless. And it, then it says, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. That's sometimes a problem. Because we get in our minds, well, why would God do that? But we need to understand that that quotation comes from the book of Malachi, chapter 1. And it's not talking about God hating Jacob before he was born, or, or hating Esau before he was born and loving Jacob before he was born. It's talking about after they were born. God chose Jacob before he was born, but the hatred came after their, and all their wickedness and everything, and God chose, and God said, I hated Esau, and I loved Jacob. You look it up in Malachi chapter 1, and it'll prove that to be true. Jacob became the man of faith. Esau became the father of Edomites, and Edomites also became enemies of God. And uh, Jacob was called, the Bible says in verse 11, according to the purpose of, of, of God, by the purpose of God according to election. What's that mean? God chose Jacob. Now, God has the right to make choices. Uh, God does it all the time, doesn't he? God chose whether you would be a boy or a girl, and by the way, you can't change that. God chose that. God chose the color of your hair. Well, some of you changed that, but you know, <laughs> originally God chose the color of your hair. God chose the color of your eyes. God chose your height and uh, your, your bone structure, all those things. God makes choices. God has the right to that, do that. He's sovereign. So God has chosen those who've trusted him as their savior. We know that we're chosen. And so the first question is, well, what about God's word? God says God's word is still intact. It hasn't failed. God's going to fulfill his promise, and it's going to be through that that remnant that's going to come, God's going to fulfill his promise. And I illustrate by the fact that God chose, God chose, and God's in charge. He knows what he's doing. But then there's another question that arises. It's in verse 14. And I've stayed like this. What about God's worth? I mean, what about God's word? God said, 
No, God's word's still true. What about God's worth? Verse 14 says, is, the, is there unrighteousness with God? In other words, God's not good. If God would do something like that, God's not good. God's not good if he chooses. God's not good. What about God's worth? Man says, that's not fair. God is wrong. And if God is wrong, then God is not righteous. And so they're saying, what about God's worth? If God's not righteous, he's not worth anything. Well, the answer is, Paul answers it in verse 14. He says this, God forbid. How dare you even say such a thing? How dare you question the worth of God? How dare you question the righteousness of God? Uh, God forbid. And then the answer is explained. God's word says that God has the right to give mercy on who he will give mercy and judgment on whom he will give judgment. Let me remind you of something. Nobody deserves God's mercy. Nobody. You don't. Nobody else does. We all deserve God's judgment. So God has the right because he's sovereign to choose who he's going to be merciful to. God has the right to do that. And he illustrates it by Pharaoh. And he says Pharaoh was raised up by God for the purpose that God might show his power through him. And then it goes on to say that whom he will, he hardeneth. Well, we know that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But if you look back in the Exodus account, you'll find that God did say in the beginning that I'm going to harden God's, uh, Pharaoh's heart. But when you start out the account, you find that Pharaoh is hardening his heart. You see, God's not taking a good man and hardening his heart. God's taking a wicked man and using him for his purpose and allowing him to be who he is, and that's a wicked man hardened against God. And the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then toward the end of the plagues, it says this, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see, I believe that if you've heard the gospel preached many times, and if you've heard that Jesus died for you, and he, wrote, and he was buried, he rose again the third day, and he wants you to trust him as your Savior, and he wants you to live for him. If you've heard that over and over again, you might have to start hardening your heart and say, well, I'm, I'm just not going to do that. There are other things I want to do. I want to live the way I want to live. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And you harden your heart. But don't you be surprised if the day comes in your life when God steps in and says, all right, buddy, all right, gal, that's it. I've given you chance after chance after chance, and I'm going to harden your heart now, and you never will believe. And you say, well, that wouldn't be right for God to do. Well, God can do what he wants to. God is God. He's sovereign. But God is long-suffering, and he will work with us. But the time will come. I don't know when that is, but the time will come when a person's life, when he just will not, will not, will not, that God just might step in and say, now you cannot. I won't let you. I'm going to harden your heart so that you'll never receive me. And that's what happens. Remember, and when, when people have heard the word of God during this church age and they go into the tribulation age and they think now, now you know, well, if that ever happens, I'll surely trust the Lord. But the Lord says those persons who've heard that word over and over again, God will send them strong delusions so they will believe a lie and they'll not be saved, but they'll be damned. You see, it's serious to go against the Lord and keep hardening your heart against the Lord. So, there's another question that's raised. What about God's word? What about God's worth? But now, there's another question. It's the third question. It's found in verse 19. And it says, says this, Thou wilt say then, O man, thou wilt say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? What about God's wisdom? Why? Why would God do that? Who has resisted his will? Well, we've all resisted his will. Why would God do that? It's like somebody saying, well, I, if I go to hell, it's God's fault because God didn't choose me or God didn't elect me. God never says that in the Bible. God never says that. And so uh, the question is, what about God's wisdom? I mean, is, is that right for God to do something like, like that? Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Saying this doesn't make sense, they say. Therefore, God is not wise. It doesn't make sense that God would do something like that. 
I remember when I was in college, before I went to seminary, I think it was my senior year at Cedarville, I had a professor named, his name was Dr. Law, or Dr. Law was a very uh, staunch man. He was a good man. He could laugh and he could smile and all that, but he was down to business when it came to the Word of God. And I remember in his class, he was teaching on the book of Romans. And one of the men in this class raised a question, and they raised his hand and asked a question. And it was this. He said something like, well, Dr. Lawler, that just doesn't seem right. <laughs> and I remember Dr. Lawler came up out of his seat. He was sitting behind his desk. He came up out of his seat. He was a short man. I mean, he's a little shorter than I am, so you know he was short. <laughs> and uh, so he's a short man. He come up out, came up out of his seat, and he came like this, and he leaned forward, and he said, Yea, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Because shall the thing form say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? And the guy just didn't say anything else. What did he do? He answered him with God. If you have the question, you say, Well, God, that's not right. That doesn't make sense. Uh, God must not be wise if he'd do anything like that. Then you better watch out because you're on the wrong side. And uh, God says, uh, He does according to his will. His will, nay, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Now, he answers that question by explaining. He says, God is the potter and we are the clay. Uh, God's the potter and we're the clay. Does it make any sense for the clay to rebuke the potter? Does it make any sense for the clay to say no to the potter? First of all, let's understand that all the clay is sinful clay. All the clay is sinful clay. When God took a hold of you and saved you, he took a piece of sinful clay. You did not deserve what he was doing to you. You did not deserve the fact that he saved you. And so he says, if you're going to object, he says, can the, potter, can the clay say to the potter, why hast thou made me thus? Then he says this, the, there are vessels of wrath and there are vessels of mercy. Now it's interesting how he states that. And look at it in verse 21, or verse 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the, uh, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? It's interesting there that he says, God took a vessel of wrath, somebody that's going to experience his wrath, and he dealt with them in long-suffering. Long-suffering. That seems to me that God is dealing with that person, working with that person, and they won't respond. And with much long-suffering, he deals with that person. And then he says this, the vessels of wrath, of, of wrath fitted to destruction. There's an interesting thing there in the Greek language, and that is that verb there is in the passive voice. Now, passive, what does passive mean? Not passive voice, I'm sorry. Uh, it's, it's in the middle voice. The middle voice is a combination of active and passive. Active is when the subject acts, and passive is when the subject is acted upon. And middle voice is when the subject acts and is act, acts upon itself, in, in other words. So it means they have prepared themselves or they have fitted themselves to destruction. The vessels of wrath have fitted themselves to destruction. That's what the verb says. It means that you are responsible. If you go to hell, it's your fault. You have fitted yourself to destruction, and it's your fault. Nobody else's. It's not God's fault. And so he deals with long-suffering those vessels who have fitted themselves to destruction. They deserve to go to hell, but he's long-suffering to them. The Lord says in another place, he's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. So God's long-suffering to them. But then he mentions the vessels of mercy in verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which are for prepared unto glory. God knew beforehand that you were going to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. He, his choosing is not based on that. You're not the one that, uh, you know, you're not all in control. It's not that. But God knows everything. 
And God includes in his sovereignty the responsibility of man. I don't understand all that, but I believe it. And that is, but I am thankful that I am a vessel of mercy. Aren't you glad you're a vessel of mercy? You know, when you get saved, the Bible says, whosoever will may come. And in your bulletin, I listed, you might read them later, there's several verses that say, whosoever, whosoever, whosoever. We sang this morning, whosoever will may come. And God's invitation is to everyone. And aren't you glad that when, when you heard that invitation, you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and trusted him, and now you're saved, and you're going to heaven. And probably when we get to heaven, it'll be like we look back on the door. It says, whosoever will, and then we look back on the doorway as we get into heaven. I mean, it won't be this way, but say it is. And we look back on the doorway, and it says, elect from the foundation of the earth. God knew that before the foundation of the earth. That doesn't bother me. I'm just glad I'm one of his. And by the way, you can be too. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be too. Why? Because he says, whosoever will may come. So God applies the answer then in verse 25. God will save a remnant of Israel, and, he will, and his promises will be fulfilled through them. So the answer to all the questions is, yes, God's word is true. Yes, God is worth all the praise you can give him. He's worthy. And yes, he, he, he is wise. He makes no mistakes because he's going to get a remnant and a remnant, and that means a small portion, are going to be saved. Out of all the children of Israel nationally, there is going to be a remnant, and through that remnant, he's going to give, he's going to give all of his promises, and it will be true that God promised to, the, to, to Israel, the believing Israel, that he would do this, and he will. God's word is true. But then the last thing we want to, res- want to discuss is this, the responsibility of man. It's also seen in this chapter. We begin in verse 30. Revelation, or Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. The first thing we want to see is that righteousness is available. You see, the, all the clay is sinful clay. All the clay is sinful clay. But we can become righteous. Righteousness is available. It's available to those who trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. But righteousness does not come through our own efforts or our own works. It doesn't come that way. Look at verse 31. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, they were religious people, hath not attained unto the law of righteousness. They wanted it, but they didn't get it. Why? Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith. Now, there's responsibility. They sought it not. Why are they not saved? Why do they have not, not have righteousness? It's not God's fault. It's their fault. That's the responsibility of men. And you are responsible to trust the Lord. And so he says... Uh, Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. You see, they sought it not by faith. They sought it by the works of the law. They thought they could be good enough, and they could attain unto righteousness, but they couldn't. Righteousness only comes from, through one way, and that is through faith. So, God chooses But also God in his choosing says this, you can be my choice. (laughs) You can be, but you have to receive me. You have to trust me. Now, God says that we must believe. Israel had to believe. Why was Israel not saved? It wasn't God's fault. It was their fault. They would not receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's by faith, and they wouldn't exercise their faith in the Lord Jesus. They stumbled at the stumbling block. That was Jesus. He was the stumbling stone. They saw him, and they said, he claims to be the Messiah. That means he should be king, and he should should reign over over Jerusalem. He should have have a throne, and he should have a crown. But instead of the crown that they thought he should wear, he wore a crown of thorns. Instead of a throne they thought he should sit on, he hung on a cross. 
and they stumbled over that. And they didn't, that's not the way they had it in their mind. And they didn't realize that he had to die for them. And so they rejected him. And the only way you'll ever come to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior if you realize that he died for you on the cross of Calvary and he paid the price for your sins and he wants to be your Savior. He rose from the grave and it's all paid for and he wants to be your Savior if you will receive him as your personal Savior. Yes, God teaches both doctrines. He teaches the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. They do not contradict each other even though they seem to contradict each other. There are definitely things we do not understand. I don't pretend to understand everything today. But that is okay because God's thoughts are high above our thoughts and our, his ways are high above our ways. You can't put God in a test tube and say, I've got this all figured out. Now, I want to say this morning, I think we have time, that uh, all of this discussion about sovereignty of God, election, predestination, Sometimes people want to say, oh, you're a Calvinist. Let me say today, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not even part Calvinist. <laughs> I'm not a Calvinist. The five points of Calvinism are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. That TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Total depravity. They say of total depravity, the man is totally depraved. By the way, God never uses those words. But they mean that that man is a sinful man, and he can't do anything. And so they, they reason like this. If God, man is totally depraved, then he cannot believe. In fact, a strict Calvinist would say that you do not believe until God regenerates you. So God borns you again, and then you believe, because a dead man can't believe. That's not the way the Bible teaches it. So I don't believe in total depravity. They also, unconditional election. I don't believe in unconditional election because I believe there is a condition. And that is, the Lord says, you must believe. That's the condition. The condition is faith. The limited atonement. They say from limited atonement that since, since the Lord uh, chose some, then that means that he only died for those because if he died for people that he didn't choose then, and they go to hell, then that would mean his cross was, had failed. And so they come, and it's all, it's, much of this is determined by human logic. They say, if this is true, this must be true. But limited atonement cannot be supported from the Scripture because the Lord says the atonement is not limited. Jesus died for everybody, and uh, he died for the sins of the world. And so the atonement is not limited. So I don't believe in limited atonement. And then they say, uh, see, T-U-L-I, irresistible grace. They say that if you're one of the elect, you can't resist God's grace. I mean, you might for a while, but the time will come when you can't. Well, the Bible doesn't seem to support that, and the Bible never states it that way. So don't state things that the Bible doesn't state. God says his grace is the reason you come to know him as your Savior. And the Bible says that no man comes into the Father unless the Father draws him. It's true. You never got saved unless the Lord draw, drew you, and he convicted you and brought you to himself. But there was the possibility for you to say no to that. And the Lord says often in the Scripture that people say no to the Lord. Even though he pled with them, they say no, and they did resist. So it's not proper to state it as irresistible grace. The only thing that I would agree with probably is the last one, which is perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints actually means that the true believer is eternally secure. I believe that. I believe we will persevere. I believe that we will, we will trust Jesus. We will continue to trust the Lord Jesus and that we will be saved for eternity. I believe that. They might define it a little bit differently, but I can take that. So I'm not a Calvinist. I'm a biblicist, I believe, and that is I believe the Bible. And so the Bible does not contradict itself. And when God says that God is sovereign and man is responsible, he means just that. Now let me give you some points in closing. Why do I believe that everybody could be saved? Anybody can be saved. I remember I had a former professor at a seminary come to speak at a graduation. I think it might have been our first graduation at a Christian school in West Virginia. His name was Dr. Paul Fink. He taught homiletics. And uh, 
Dr. Paul Fink preached the message that morning. I remember him saying, he said, you can't take the gospel to the wrong person. And he said, you can go up and down Morgan Hollow Road, and that's where the church was located. And he said, you can knock on any door and tell them God loves them, Jesus died for them, and they can be saved if they'll believe in him. And it won't be false. It'll be true. And you can take that message to anybody. Jesus died for everybody. And I like the way he illustrated that. But the Bible says that. In John chapter 3, God so loved the world, he sent his son to die for perishing people. Because he was not willing that they perish, but that all would come to repentance. And he said if they would believe, they could be saved. If they won't believe, they'll be damned because they wouldn't believe. John 3, 16 through 18 tells us that. Believers are told to take the gospel to, throughout all the world to every creature. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. That illustrates what Dr. Fink said. And that is, you can't take the gospel to the wrong house. You can't take the gospel to the wrong person. If Jesus only died for a few, it would be a lie for you to go to a, a so-called unelect person and say to them that Jesus died for you. If he didn't, that would be a lie. And it's not a lie, because Jesus said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Every creature. Jesus died for everybody. Also, God's not willing that any should perish. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He gathered some children on his, on his knee in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 18. And he says, I'm not willing that any of these should perish. Any of these little ones should perish. Jesus said that. He is, he is the propitiation for our sins, the Bible says in 2 John chapter 2, verse 2. And he states it this way. He is the propitiation, that means satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, how do you get limited atonement out of that? You can't. Jesus died for everybody. Also, the Bible says that Jesus cried over Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 23, it says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that were sent unto thee, how oft would I have gathered your children under, uh, your children under my wings as, as a chicken under my wings, and ye would not. God was saying, I was willing, but ye wouldn't. I cried to you, but you wouldn't. I want you to come, but you won't come. And the Lord said, he died, I believe, for everyone. In fact, 2 Peter states it like this. In the latter days, there will come false teachers, as there has been in the past false prophets. There will come false teachers, and they will deny the Lord that bought them. What's that say? False teachers who are giving false doctrine who themselves are going to go to hell, are denying the Lord that bought them. He paid the price for them. He died for them. And so I believe Jesus died for everybody. And that anybody who wants to and who will believe on Jesus, they can be saved. So I believe both things. I believe God's sovereign. He makes choices. Election is true. Predestination speaks of two things in the Bible. Predestined us to be adopted and predestined us to be likened to Jesus Christ. God's determined that all believers, that would be true of them. And God's determined that. But also God says, man, you're responsible. And if, if, if you will receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can be saved and know that you're one of God's. And if you don't, You'll be lost, and it won't be God's fault. It'll, because, because, it'll be because you did not receive. Years ago, when I was a boy, probably between 10 and 13 years old, we lay, lived on Mason Morrow Mill Grove Road between Kings Mills and South Lebanon. As you're coming from Kings to South Lebanon, it would be where the first gravel pit is there on the left. That's where our big farmhouse stood. We lived there. At that time, there was a railroad track before you got to our house that went down to the Little Miami River. It's now a bike trail. Many times, I've gone down to that, little, that railroad track, and I would take a penny. 
and I would place it on that, on that track, and I would wait for a train to come by. A train would come by, and it did what they do in Gatlinburg and things like that. It would smash that penny, and it all smashed out, and I'd take that penny home like a souvenir. But there's another thing I remember about that railroad track, and that is I would look down that ra- railroad track, and sure as the world, it looked, I mean, it looked exactly like those two tracks at a distance came together. It surely, have you ever done that? You look down a railroad track, and they're straight like this, but you look far enough, and it looks like they just come together. That's the way it is with the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. In our minds, they seem to contradict. It seems like they come together. They, just, they, they, don't, they don't run parallel true all the time. It seems like they contradict in our minds. That's when we need to say, let God be true and every man a liar. I believe God regardless what my mind says. I believe that God is sovereign and he chooses, but I also believe that man is responsible and he can choose. And I keep both those things in my mind, and I believe both of them. And you'll never hear me say, I don't believe in election, or I don't believe in predestination. I do. But I also believe that you can be saved if you want to be. (laughs) And if you're not, it's your fault and not God's. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for helping us try to explain this difficult subject. We thank you, Lord, that you're greater than we are and that we really can't put you in a test tube, but we can know what you say and we can believe what you say. And it doesn't have to be logical, Lord. We know that because you're true regardless what our logic says. And I pray that we just believe you. Now, if somebody's here that's not saved today, I pray that they will understand if they go to hell, it's going to be their fault. And I pray also, Lord, they'll understand if they keep saying no to Jesus, the day might come that he will say no to them. So work in hearts and accomplish your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.